Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your co-host Aisha Ali, joined by my fellow co-hosts Ragini Singh Pavar and Yashu Sharma. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Following the rise of social media and digital platforms, digital activism has become a cornerstone of the most recent social movements, especially the fourth wave of feminism characterized by online movements such as Me Too and Time's Up. Organizing digitally has enabled these feminist movements to reach much wider audiences and has led to large-scale participation the world over. This episode dives into digital feminist activism in China, where online spaces are highly regulated and censored. Today, we're in conversation with Professor Sarah Liao from Penn State University. Professor Liao is a media scholar and a feminist. Her research interests intersect digital labor, feminist studies, globalization, and East Asian popular culture. Her book, Fashioning China, investigates gender digital labor in China's maker culture and fashion industry, highlighting how social media commerce has transformed creative industries and produced new forms of creativity, identity, and precarity in work and life. She is published in renowned academic journals and currently works on researching and writing about the tangled relationship between digital culture of misogyny and popular nationalism in China. Good morning, Professor Liao. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So to start off, I'd like to take a look back at feminism in China. Could you give our listeners a brief history of the feminist landscape in China and how digital media came to be used for activism? Sure. So feminist thoughts and actual kind of practice that has a long history in China. During the early 20th centuries, we have some feminist figures. They are in education. They are talking about the revolution thoughts in China and kind of like embrace women's liberation as part of the nation's celebration. So we have like even early communist members. They were women and full of bright and thoughtful uh, ideas to actively participate in the social movement and envision the new nation. And as of the establishment of the People's Republic of China in the mid-century, that was the start of the so-called state feminism kind of period, where there were radical equalitarianism. Um, There is a famous quote for that period, which is calling women hold up half of the sky. So the historian and scholar in women's study at U of Michigan, Dr. Wang Zheng, also have a, a wonderful new book, which is called Fighting Women in a State, that gives an excellent account of the history of socialist state feminists, how they negotiated within the Communist Party to work to advance gender and class equality. And moving forward to the reform and, and opening period in late 1970s, there were a lot of like policies and, and actual implementation of market reform. And there was a, a quite huge debate among intellectuals to try to reclaim Chinese women as gender subjects and also try to rediscover their femininity in the sake of empowerment and eman- emancipation. So there were several trends afterwards, which is uh, much more than uh, type of feminist ideas and practices. The first would be the influx of transnational consumer culture, as well as the proliferation of domestic pop culture with the enhanced kind of material conditions of people in general. These factors all contribute to promote consumer subjectivities for women, particularly those young, urban, and educated women. 
And the market reform also heavily relying on migrant rural labor, which widen rural urban divide, but also like we see a lot of gendered labor, such as the young migrant women working in sweatshop. They kind of become a symbol intertwined politics of gender, labor, class, and capitalism constantly appearing in global spotlight. So um, the sociologist she also studied a lot about the kind of migrant women labor, which is also showing a different aspect or perspective of the feminist landscape during the reform era. A third trend, I would say, is the rise and fall of the non-governmental organizing, which kind of like followed the United Nations first World Conference on Women held in Beijing in 1995. So the NGO feminism, um, they kind of mobilize state resources, institutional resources, and also collaborate with state-led organizations that advance or address uh, gender issues. But also, as we enter into the 21st century, the kind of NGO-driven feminism are gradually kind of fading um, due to a variety of factors where some scholars will call that a new kind of paradigm has come, where the outer system feminism that we often see today as those digital feminists or digital activists with a young, well-educated feminists or, or students. Many will call them millennial feminists. Um, they constantly distance themselves from the state, from any institutional resources, but also swiftly utilize media, digital technologies to initiate conscious racing campaigns, as well as holding a lot of discussions related to gender, women, um, sexuality, and so on and so forth, those kind of topics online. And at the beginning of like the early 2000s, we can see there were some space for both online and offline mobilization and activism for things related to gender, sexuality, and, and other topics. But increasingly, there were lots of this kind of suppressions, censorship. So increasingly shrinking the space for activists to kind of uh, become vocal and really making progressives in terms of actual policy change. So that will probably kind of give a, a broader background of the digital activist feminism in China. Thank you for this brief and very informative recap. Moving on to more recent history, um, let's talk about the Me Too movement, which got the most media attention, especially in Western media. So how did the Me Too movement start off in China? What was the case that led to the outbreak? And how did the Chinese state react to the outpouring of cases on social media? So this particular moment in 2018, it's like a it a public crisis, but or like concentrated in one case that has been broke out in the New Year's Day in 2018. There was a scholar called Luo Xixi, an overseas Chinese academic. So she alleged that her former professor Chen Xiaowu at Beihang University had sexually uh, assaulted her 12 years previously. So this post was originated on the social media in a WeChat uh, public account by an independent journalist, Wang Shiqing. And this particular post soon went viral, triggered heated online discussions, and forced the university to strip the professor of his position and also investigate the case. 
And later, this professor who used to be a really renowned scholar in a list of so-called Changjiang Scholar programs sponsored by the Ministry of Education to reward his extraordinary academic contributors. So he was also later removed from that particular list. I think the case also uh, made the Ministry of Education promise to establish a mechanism to prevent sexual harassment at colleges and universities. So this particular case sparked uh, many later cases, not simply in higher education, but also extended to a lot of other areas and industries that has been widely covered by both Chinese news media and also um, the, the foreign medias. I think the conventional impression is that the government actually started to censor such kind of public posts and communication about the sexual harassment cases after Xianzi, who publicly spoke up her experience of being harassed by a TV persona household name called Zhu Jing and later also filed a lawsuit. That was probably uh, around the mid of 2018. But there was a particular moment, um, or we would call a window, in the first half of 2018. We see many cases has been exposed. Um, many victims really brave enough to come out and talk about their experiences. It actually raised a lot of like a conscious about the sexual harassment culture. Some of the concerned activists have collected roughly 26, 27 Me Too cases that were disclosed and circulated since 2018 to mid to late 2019. And they added them into a more than 2,000 page document called Me Too in China Archive. It contains not only the sources of these cases, but also many critical responses, commentaries, and discussions that garner great attention in the society. I would say after Xianzi's case, the government and also media started to have this conscience to intentionally suppress the voice of vocal women or feminists. This is the general reaction of the state of media. And just to elaborate a bit more on that, what are the techniques that the Chinese state uses to try and silence feminist activists? And how are the activists in turn adapting and adjusting their strategies to continue their work? Well, I think there are many conventional repressive tactics that has been used worldwide um, in authoritarian countries to control the internet and, and online discussion about things that the government doesn't like, such as monitoring online conversations, deleting the posts and discussion threads that government may concern as sensitive, problematic, or in China usually like associated with foreign hostile forces or inciting social instability. Even more repressively, the government might use police force to check on activists and their families. There might be other forms like limiting personal freedom, um, such as house arrest or even a detention. But also we can connect like this kind of more conventional techniques that the Ch Chinese government control information and manage public opinion to broader way that they conduct slot work and propaganda. And those kind of tactics do not limit to contain feminist dissents, but all sorts of things. Um, they started to revamp digital news outlet. It's kind of like a control. What kind of news can the general public get? 
they also encourage the page Arctic bloggers to be collaborators for the propaganda um, to promoting certain type of state policies relating to gender um, and, and other topics. And the state also very actively creating pop culture images, stories, and campaign to promote their own gender ideology. So all of this combined, like they are making great effort and have like really huge impact to silence feminist activists online. And over the years, we will see the kind of online discussion and the so-called digital activism has been extremely hampered by all these efforts, especially from the state and the kind of media censorship. So publicly, what you can see now is that there are some sort of legal advice or help through things like domestic violence hotlines um, that are still available, that's public available and can be seen and promoted through a lot of social media platforms. There are some productions, the cultural productions, such as podcasts, um, like public talks addressing gender issues, but not that much related to um, progressive uh, movements or, or kind of like this activism or advocacy, because all this like public images of feminism need to manage a certain degree of, of tapping the red line. They are, they are kind of like a self-censored organizers kind of need to have like strong awareness and know how to manage to present themselves, not really inviting the, the kind of censorship. However, there are more like private closed door type of community building effort that has been initiated and, and really contributed by all sorts of feminists, activists. Um, we see a lot of like conscious raising efforts um, leading in those more public images of podcast cultural productions, scholar discussions that discussing some kind of feminist topics, but within a certain kind of like safe space, such as intimate relationship, how to manage like a family relationship, how to um, deal with like self-caring and healing, so on and so forth. There are also a um, lot of like reading clubs that providing some safe space to discuss um, many famous work that's addressing gender, class and, and labor topics. And I also got to know there are many online and offline talk shows and gigs that's more like private and closed door, um, which would addressing the gender issues. All of this might not appear as a form of like activism or the kind of action that we usually associated with social movement, but they are they are really like managing um, to to balance what they can what they can do in terms of building their community and, and making people aware of issues, but also um, avoiding or kind of like bypassing the censorship and monitoring from the state, from media. Wow, that's really interesting. So in addition to pressures from the state, what are other constraints that the feminist movement in China faces? And have you noticed any similarities in these constraints with other contexts? Well, yes, of course. So while the, the state is definitely one source of direct and indirect oppressions that feminist movement in China today faces, there are many more. 
one of the, the very important kind of like facilitator or contributor to constrain feminist movement, as I mentioned in previous answers, is, is the media. So it's both the state media and those private media platforms, such as Weibo, which is a Twitter-like platform that most Chinese will use to discuss a lot of social issues. And another one is called WeChat, um, which is more like a combination of instant message, Instagram, and all these different functions together, but have like a more private face. So this company's media platforms, I would say, play a very vital role in containing progressive movement, not simply feminist movement, but any kind of freedom movement, because those platforms are mainly profit-driven. But in the Chinese context, we will see those activities of profit-driven need to be operated within a certain ideologic limit or the state control. Therefore, they are kind of building the platform surrounding certain topics that can drive traffic and attention, but also not tapping onto the red line. Of course, feminist kind of topics that's promoting gender equality or the kind of uh, more equity in different genders somehow can be part of this profit-driven yet not really sensitive topic. So you will see a lot of these uh, topics discussing fashion, gender, maternity, relationship. Those can be progressive to a certain sense, can be um, controversial as well, and they are also catch a lot of attention. So those type of topics are largely allowed and proliferated on those platforms. But if you tap onto more progressive, like we need to demand workplace uh, anti-discrimination law, we are demanding uh, establishing the anti-sexual harassment policy structure mechanism in higher education, so on and so forth. Those type of topics might be a little bit controversial and it can be self-censored by the platform itself. So you see those private companies, the digital platforms really play a very important gatekeeper function in terms of what is allowed, what can be made visible. So in terms of its influence in feminist movement, it creates a certain kind of online discussion environment where a lot of progressive feminist topics has been censored out uh, or filtered out because of the kind of sensitivity that it suspects would trigger state censorship so the platform also act as a, a kind of censor or governor to those kind of topics. And it become a very active collaborator with the state to enforce its violence. And such kind of coupling between the state violence or the patriarchal type of state control with private tech companies' interest really building a surveillance and, and even what nowadays can be called terror capitalism if I borrow from another scholar, Daryl Biden's word, we can see many freedom movements around the world that really have such a factor. The Black feminist movement and the abolitionist feminist movement uh, around the world. We can also see in the free Palestine movement, free Uyghur movement, also in the recent Iranian movement. So mm -hmm. there are this combination of factors beyond the state violence. It's, it might not be really direct from the state, but with the collaboration with this capitalism, the transnational tech company's interest. Thank you. So now switching gears a little bit and taking more of a global look, 
how have transnational networks and dynamics had an effect on feminist activism in China? And what aspects of these movements are uniquely local to the Chinese context, which you don't see anywhere else in the world? Well, I would say there has been a trend for many Chinese vocal feminists and activists traveling abroad, studying there, and even staying there to um, start their local communities that not only support the feminist movement back in China, but also increasingly tightening their agenda with more contextualized local concern, such as racial and, and other type of uh, discriminations in their host countries or host places. So, uh, for example, as we can see in North America, there were a lot of groups, overseas Chinese feminist groups, that they have been very actively launching different kind of campaigns. Many of them were target international Chinese students that um, raised their consciousness about gender issues, but also as an immigrant or a part of the diaspora group in a foreign country, how they negotiate their identities. So such kind of network building or community building effort actually provide a lot of like the support um, in terms of like thoughts and practical advices to those students who might be just like a temporary, have like a temporary stay in these countries. And they might, they might really bring the, the beliefs, the, the thoughts and practical advices back to China to start or continue um, feminist movement to address the struggles over freedom. And in recent two years, one of the very prominent case that really invoked a lot of effort contributed by the transnational network of Chinese feminists is another Me Too case that has happened in the University of Minnesota campus, where is the Chinese international students was sexually harassed and raped by a businessman from China. So this is a very high profile case. And the transnational network, um, not simply in the U.S., but also in China, in Europe, there are many places, um, overseas Chinese feminists really launch campaigns to support this victim and have like a, a lot of like discussions, creating the social media buzz um, in China and in other places around the world. So I would say this kind of transnational effort um, to build network, community, and also raise consciousness and giving very practical advices to social movement to these international students or, or like Chinese immigrants really help to integrate feminist thoughts as part of this broader global struggle over freedom and emancipation. Wow, that's really interesting. Thank you. So I came across this quote uh, in a piece about Chinese censorship for the feminist movement in the New Yorker, in which an elementary school teacher said, and I quote, no matter how viral a news event is, it will become the past. No matter how loud a slogan is, it will die down. So this serves to show that viral and high profile cases like the ones that you mentioned galvanize interest, but they do tend to kind of die down after a while. So Professor Liao, is there any actual change in the policy-making process, in legislation, or even in societal attitudes that has happened as a result of this activism? 
Thank you for the question and the code itself. I feel like the code really speaks to like the phenomenon that we have uh, shorter memories as long as we are entering this age of internet where we have like proliferation of information, but really we, we are facing more and more constraint in terms of retain or, or make very consistent effort or activism, continue them for a long time. But speaking back to the policy changes or, or in terms of legislation, if we take sexual harassment as an example and look at China's situation, I would say, first of all, the, the Me Too movement really, first and foremost, informed ongoing public debate about what sexual harassment is. While this term is mentioned in the Law for Protection of Women's Rights and Interests, this law particularly took effect in around 2005. The, the sexual harassment this term has been invoked, but it did not really, the law did not really define the term clearly. Not until the end of 2018, the Supreme Court in China started to list sexual harassment as grounds for civil lawsuits. And in mid-2019, there was the first such civil lawsuit and in a partial victory for the plaintiff. So this outcome is considered as groundbreaking in setting the tone of similar upcoming civil cases with um, sexual harassment as grounds. And in 2020, China has released implemented a new civil code, which declared that the government, uh, enterprises, schools, and other institutions, they will adopt some measures, appropriate measures to prevent and stop sexual harassment behaviors. That's particularly relating to how those sexual harassment as part of like the power struggles or, or taking advantage of positions. So such a civil code also really inspired or might have some implication to the public consultation of another really important policy. That's the draft of Women's Protection Law Amendment. So during the end of 2021 and early 2022, there were two public consultation periods. And the draft of the amendment on women's protection law also defied specific behavior and expression as sexual harassment, um, while adding some requirements for schools to establish mechanism in order to prevent the, the harassment and assault. But I would say... We see frequently that there is one step forward, but two steps back. So this improvement in policymaking process or the legal procedures, they also come at a cost of silencing many grassroots activists working on the same issues. For example, the, the Xianzi case, as I mentioned previously, its appeal, the second, even like the second trial, has been dismissed. And many other mutual allegations and lawsuits are also slowly making their way through the judicial system. None of them really have substantial results. Media and public interest in those cases also proved fleeting, as you mentioned. They died down very quickly. So it's complicated. We have progress, but it's very slow and hard. Thank you. To kind of round up our conversation, 
as you mentioned, with CNC's uh, appeal being dismissed recently, as well as with increased repression by the Chinese government on social media, especially after the recent COVID protests, what do you see as the future of digital feminist activism in China? Well, I think it's it's still like trying, trying and trying again and again. I mean, remaining optimism is, is absolutely a necessity, even if it's just optimism of the will. And we still can see, maybe not especially in a very public way, there are still a lot of work happening done by many concerned feminists and activists. And these are the people who's really risking a lot of things to keep doing what they believe will lead to a better future or envision a better future. So recently, um, I have like an interview with one of the feminists. So she talked about how a couple of friends and, and her created their own very like private closed door community um, to sharing arts, their feelings of political depression. This kind of like sharing and the kind of um, community building and then the healing process are the things that come, I, I constantly heard about and myself also participated in several um, that is more kind of like a private, which I believe it's very important to build up the future for digital feminist activism and broader feminist movement in China. Maybe we cannot for sure to see it, but that's mm-hmm. the process we are making. Thank you so much, Professor Leo, for taking the time and speaking with us today. Uh, this was a very informative conversation, and we're so glad to have you on Beyond the Headlines. Thank you very much. It's it's a great pleasure to talk about it. Once again, that was Professor Sarah Liao, who joined us for a discussion on digital feminist activism in China. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines. Today's show was produced by myself, Aisha Ali, alongside my co-producers, Ragini Singh Pavar and Yashri Sharma. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us from wherever you are listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Hmong School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.